0: This is a special Bluebird Surveillance Podcast
1: with our Chief Washington Correspondent, Kevin Cirilli. Kevin spent the day talking to officials in the halls of the West Wing, and we're putting those conversations together for you in this special podcast. Let's get straight to it now. Here is Kevin Cirilli. Uh, Dr. Brooks, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I want to ask you, there's been this uptick in cases, and what is the administration doing in order to get these cases back down?
0: Yeah, thank you. That's a really terrific question because the current uptick in cases that now extends really from Washington State through Oregon into California, across um, Arizona, New Mexico, and then of course Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Texas. Um, is really a very critical outbreak that needs to be contained. And I think collectively, I was just out on, in the field going to um, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and Florida and really getting it on the ground, to report and experience to understand how we can be even more supportive. I think we're supporting their testing and we're supporting increased human capacity at their hospitals. But I want to really applaud the governors who've taken decisive action to really mandate masks, increase social distancing, close bars, ensure that Um, If you can't social distance in an indoor restaurant, really decreasing that capacity of indoor restaurants, moving dining outside, and really talking to the people in their metro areas and their counties and what each individual needs to do. We all need to do all of these things. We also have to make sure that we're not bringing that virus into our households by having parties then inside the houses. So I think there's a lot we can do as individual Americans, but there's a lot we can do at the state and local and federal level to support that response and change the course of this, really this pandemic across the South, but also now up the West Coast.
1: And Dr. Burks, I mean, some of the numbers, it's astounding to see how young people, young people are, are really seeing a lot of the uptick in cases and they're making some poor decisions. They're going to bars, they're going to, you know, we all see the images on the news. How do we prevent young people from getting these infections?
0: I think there's two pieces of that. One is to be very honest with them and to tell them that there's a spectrum of disease in young people. That Truly, they will know people who are test positive that have no symptoms. They will know people with mild, like only a sore throat and a runny nose. They will know people who got a bad fever and were sick for two weeks. And they need to know that there's also young Americans who are in the hospitals right now suffering from very severe disease. And so there is a spectrum, I think, when they saw that a lot of their friends had mild disease and then they saw in social media that people were having a great time together You know, they wanted to have a great time together too. And it's now on all of us to really change those messages to really resonate with our millennials and Gen Cs so that they understand the risk those decisions make, not only to them potentially getting infected but their parents getting infected and critically their their grandparents who may be in their 80s getting infected, all which we know have a very severe course. And so I think translating that message into something that people not only hear but act on is really critical. Sometimes in public health, we just keep saying the same thing over and over again and think that, you know, eventually it will resonate. No, people turn off. So we really have to make messages much more tailored to very specific age groups so that they not only can hear the message, but internalize it and then change their behavior to really protect themselves. They're their friends who may have pre-existing conditions and protecting others by really being in masks all the time. We can get through this um, until we have a vaccine, if we all do our part.
1: Dr. Burks, you've been so generous with your time, and I want to talk about another portion of this that, quite frankly, I don't think economists are talking enough about, and that is, from an economic perspective, a lot of parents have children who are potentially going back to school in the fall, or they're unsure if kids are going to be going back to school. Dr. Burks, in the fall. So, number one, how should schools be preparing for the potential reopening of schools? And secondly, uh, just as important, what is the government doing in order to make sure that the classrooms are safe and clean and healthy for these kids?
0: Well, I think you've raised a critical point. There is health and there's COVID, and there's actually health of our children, and then there's the economic crisis. Um, So there's really three parts, and I think if we put the child at the center and say what is best for the American child, what experiences do they need? And when we come to the conclusion that they need to be in school, then we need to really figure out how to make that a safe environment. I know many jurisdictions have worked on this. I think we also have to make sure that we have a way for teachers and administrators to be safe. And we need to have a way that households can be safe um, if they're multi-generational households, because we know children will come infected, just like we have 18-year-olds and 22-year-olds infected, and may not show symptoms. And so these are, we have to bring in testing into the schools as well as you describe, creating a healthy environment and really working together at the state and local level and the federal level to learn from each other of how we with putting the child at the center and meeting their needs we able to create that safe environment for both the families the teachers and the children
1: it really is just so many different questions and that's and that's where it comes from from the elementary you know k-12 through perspective and you know i come from a family of teachers but then there's the higher ed perspective dr yeah. burks colleges and universities and you've got kids going out of state in state i mean what what should higher education uh, institutions be doing
0: Well, in a way, I think it's a little bit easier for higher educational institutions and and the older children in K through 12, because on on the White House website about four weeks ago, we really put up a document of how you can do routine surveillance testing by pooling samples. So let's say you have a dormitory of 300 people. They could be tested weekly with 30 tests. Um, and that is easy to do, and within each of these universities, they have a depth of testing capacity that has not been utilized. And so we've been talking to university presidents and and deans about how to turn on their research testing capacity to routinely screen their um, student body, and I think that is very possible. And then how we take that into K through twelve that need it when you see virus circulating in the community, how you get in there and do what we call surveillance testing and schools. And that can be done classroom by classroom. There's a lot of advice about how to keep students in um, specific cohorted classrooms. And so if there's only infection in that particular cohort they may have to quarantine for two weeks but the rest of the school can continue to go we know how to do this we have the science and we have the technology we need the will to bring this type of innovative testing to our K through12s and to our universities and colleges
1: I've got one more question for you because you've been so generous with your time and I'm incredibly appreciative dr. Deborah Burks is on the line and of course she is uh, she is uh, the, one of the top diplomats in America physicians who is really driving uh, behind the scenes as well as sometimes publicly uh, the the White House coronavirus response. Uh, And and you have deep experience with this because of your experience and how the United States handled HIV and AIDS and whatnot. When we do get a vaccine, you know, when, not if, when, how is the administration preparing so that everyone can get one and that there's no socioeconomic questions that come into account, but that, everyone, that it's equal distribution, how are we preparing for the vaccine?
0: I think the evidence of what this administration has done for making testing free, for making care when it wasn't affordable or people didn't have insurance um, free, um, so that everybody can get what they need to protect themselves about the virus. I'm sure similar will happen with vaccination. Just a couple comments on vaccination. So there are vaccines that will do what we call sterilizing immunity. It prevents you from getting infected. That's a more rare vaccine. Most vaccines prevent you from getting disease. And what do I mean by that? You could get a low-grade infection, asymptomatic, last 36 to 48 hours. You clear the virus, you're fine. And so many of these vaccines may work in that way. And so then we have to really make sure that with the first available vaccines that we're immunizing the cohort and the cohorts most susceptible to severe disease. And we know who those are. We know particularly long-term care facilities, nursing homes, people in closed settings like prisons. Of course, it would all be voluntary, but we wanna make sure a vaccine go to the most needed. CDC is working on a generalized distribution plan that gets it because they're used to doing it for flu to get it to all across America. But I think Americans would understand that we need to prioritize the groups that could have the most severe illness first and then work our way through the rest of the United States to make sure that everyone has access.
1: All right, Dr. Burks, I will leave it there. We're joined by Secretary Azar. And I want to ask you about this executive order that uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows talked about yesterday in terms of prescription drug pricing. Can you give us any details?
2: Well, uh, I make it a business to not preempt the president <laughs> or the chief of staff. So uh uh, I'm going to I'm going to leave any actual announcements uh, to them. But suffice it to say, the president has been deeply committed to getting prescription drug prices down. We've approved historic levels of generic drugs. Drugs um, We've seen prescription drug inflation flatten from where it had been uh, before he before he took office and before he laid out the blueprint, where it was, I think, about five percent on average inflation to now we're basically flat zero percent inflation. But he remains committed to leveling the playing field internationally and stop foreign free riding where they don't where other countries don't pay enough for their drugs and we pay too much uh, to ensure that we decrease what people especially our senior citizens pay out of pocket for their drugs and he's deeply committed to the concept that people should have the freedom to get their drugs, import them from abroad, if they can get them in a safe, effective way that reduces their cost.
1: Well, that's what I want to follow up on, because we, we he, there's also been some reports about potentially more executive orders as it relates to, uh, to manufacturing. And I've been having conversations with administration officials on the economy, as well as protecting the domestic and international supply chain. And that includes, as you're alluding to, Mr. Secretary, that includes uh, prescription drugs. So how how does that what what needs to be done in uh, between the public and the private sector in order to protect people's medicines especially if they are parts of it is made internationally like in China
2: yeah so I think that the coronavirus pandemic has brought home that core elements of our medical supply chain are just as strategic to our national security as say nuclear submarines or aircraft carriers are and have to be treated uh, with that same kind of approach, which is to make sure we have core domestic manufacturing capabilities. Now, that means paying for that. That does mean that uh, right now we've seen the supply chain uh, go to low-cost areas in the world, Um as well as areas that have protectionist trade policies that lead to lower prices of goods. Um, So it might mean that we have to use um, our powers under the Defense Production Act or otherwise to fund and incentivize domestic manufacturing to ensure purchasing here of domestic manufactured products so that we essentially um, support and defend a local, domestically-based, strategic Focus around pharmaceuticals as well as personal protective equipment.
1: Can I can I ask you one more question? Do you have a, a, a timetable on that executive order? I just I want to know if if we're going to get it a couple weeks, couple days in terms of big pharma.
2: Uh, well, I don't have a timetable for you. Again, I'll leave that to the president yeah. to make a decision on when he, uh, when and whether he's going to do anything by executive order. All
1: right, and just and and just more broadly, I, I, it's so many questions that I get uh, from folks outside of the industry, outside of Washington, is they want to know about vaccine development. They want to know that when there is a vaccine, when there is an effective treatment uh, and vaccine, that that everyone's going to be able to get it when they want. Can you give us a, an inside account as to how the vaccination process and what the government's doing to make sure that people can get that vaccine once it is in the market.
2: Yeah. So the first thing we have to do is get vaccine and get vaccine manufactured and ensure that it's a safe and effective vaccine, according to the FDA's gold standard regulatory approval processes. So we just had an important announcement today uh, where we are investing in a fourth uh, fourth vaccine candidate. This is Novavax's protein based vaccine, one point six billion dollars for advanced R&D, as well as advanced manufacturing to secure 100 million doses of the vaccine. So what are we doing with whether it's our relationship with Moderna or the AstraZeneca vaccine or the Janssen J&J vaccine or now Novavax? um, We are funding the R&D to make sure that we compress the timelines, any inefficiency in the development timelines, not sacrificing standards, but just ensuring that we're avoiding any types of unnecessary delay on development, Uh, so uh, that taking the pharma timelines that normally you would get, say, phase one data, you come, you sit down, you study it, you spend time, then you design a phase two or phase three trial, um, and instead compressing that, have that pre-designed, have that so you can go right away. And then on manufacturing, make the investment to scale up commercial manufacturing to deliver hundreds of millions of doses, even as you're doing the development trials to make to, to, to prove that the vaccine would be safe and effective. Um, So what we're also doing is the distribution work is, of course, as you mentioned, critical. So uh, we are working internally and we will engage external stakeholders in a process to advise on as we get more limited supplies of vaccine out. So in the fall, as we get, say, tens of millions of vaccine and scale up to the hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine in early next year, um, who are the first groups that ought to be vaccinated. Uh, that'll be an ethical process. It'll be a public process where we gather input to help make those determinations.
1: I want to be very respectful of your time, and I and you've been very generous with yours. And so I'm going to uh, end, end the interview there. But I, I really appreciate your time, Secretary Azar, uh, and for taking my okay. questions. Thank you. I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. We're joined by Secretary Brulette. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thanks so much for being here. I want to get your reaction uh, to really what's been going on uh, in the past day, uh, which is you've got a court order that says the Dakota Access crude oil pipeline has got to shut down, and then you've got developers of the Atlantic Coast gas conduit saying that they've got to cancel the project. Are these... Are these types of pipelines, these massive pipelines, are these a thing of the past, or what has to be done in order to allow them to be built?
3: Oh, that's great. Hey, great to be with you again, Kevin. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about these issues today. No, they are not uh, they're not done. They're not dinosaurs and they're not things of the past. Uh, very disappointing news coming out of um, you know the East Coast with regard to the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, however. So. You know, look, I understand the decision. It's an economically rational decision. These people have spent $3 billion over six years. Uh, they won a Supreme Court case, and yet they are still unable to see their way through uh, to develop this pipeline. It's very, very concerning. Uh, we'll see what the next steps are there, but I understand the decision, and while disappointing, uh, um, you know, I think it's a, probably at this point an economically rational decision. I am not quite certain, however, that I understand, you know, what the environmental activists are actually celebrating, uh, you know, except for perhaps the loss of American jobs and the, uh, the loss of access to cheap gas, uh, cheap natural gas down in North Carolina and other places along the pipeline. Uh, not much there to cheer about, in my opinion. With regard to the Dakota Access Pipeline, we'll have to wait and see. I did review the decision quickly yesterday. Um, I assume that the parties that are involved with that are going to avail themselves of whatever legal options present uh, are presented to them. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what those decisions are. But it's very, very important that Uh, We we take advantage of these opportunities to create uh, what the president calls regulatory certainty, Uh, and he has directed me very early in this administration to look at the regulations within the Department of Energy, eliminate those that are redundant or simply unnecessary, and we've done exactly that. So we're going to continue that as we move along.
1: You know, even beyond that, we're staring down, Mr. Secretary, the prospects of another economic stimulus ahead of the August recess. What would you like to see included in that? And do you think that more government aid is going to be needed for the oil and gas industry at this point?
3: You know, I think, I think what's happening in the energy industry uh, depends on what part of the industry you're talking about, obviously. But, you know, with regard to things like oil and gas, uh, we're seeing demand for refined product come back in a very good way, very aggressive way. As that demand curve continues to increase, as people begin to get out and about, as the economies continue to open, uh, we're going to see these guys do just fine. I'm so proud of this particular industry because of the innovations that they've been able to develop over the course of the last two, three, perhaps four decades, that allows them to ramp up and down their production numbers very, very efficiently. So. You know, I think as we continue to open up, we're going to have a great, great economic recovery and energy is going to underpin almost all of it
1: and and to, to bring it back to what you said I mean we're, we're talking macro right now but to go down to the to the localized level for so many of these individuals whether they're court cases or whether they're they're you know the, the back and forth of what's going on, on on capitol Hill these are jobs for many people and in, in, in parts of the country that have been just completely economically devastated as a result of this pandemic what what needs to be done to help those refinery workers to be helped to help those uh, you know drillers who want to get back to work maybe they are reopening but they're staring these down the headlines of all of this economic uncertainty what needs to be done to specifically help them
3: we need to continue to open up the economy that's what's going to help them the most and i think the president is very appropriately pursuing that you know with regard to the other government programs the cares act the paper uh, check protection act um all of those programs, I think Secretary Mnuchin and others have done a great job of making those available to the energy industry. I know that many have taken, ava- um, taken advantage of or made uh, those programs available to their employees as well as their, you know, their corporate entities. We need to continue to see that happen as we move along. But first and foremost, you know, the demand for energy is going to fix so many of these issues that we're dealing with right now in the economy. And um, I think the president has done a great job of opening up the economy in a way that protects the health and welfare of the American people and creates the economic activity that we need to see these industries survive and thrive post-pandemic.
1: I have two more questions for you, and I'll keep it quick. Why, just on the Dakota Access Pipeline, why is that so critical at a time, especially when there's an energy surplus surplus in depressed markets, and, and along with this gl- greater global reliance on renewable sources? Talk to me about Dakota well, Access. These,
3: sure. Well, these types of pipelines, you, know, you think about what they're bringing in, and you think about what their purposes are. You know, in, in many cases, they're bringing in, for instance, crude oil that's uh, necessary for certain refineries here in the United States. You know, we talked about energy independence in the past, and we talked about the fact that our production numbers are now very, very high. And the United States is, in fact, independent of many of the the negative uh, consequences of being too dependent upon adversarial nations. But what happens in trade is that certain types of oil are, are very advantageous to certain refineries. And that's what we're seeing in the case of some of the pipelines in the Northeast. Canada produces very heavy crude that is needed at, at these refineries. So bringing it in and allowing that trade to happen is very important. If you shut down the pipeline, you've shut off of an avenue uh, for a very important resource for many parts of the country, places like Ohio, uh, places uh, down in Houston, Texas, where you know these refineries are set up for this heavy crude.
1: Do you think we need to, 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 to do something to the permitting system? And is that an, a congressional fix or an executive order fix or any actions that you yeah. can take?
3: Well, I think, I think what the president has, has directed us to do at the federal level uh, is working. So, for instance, I'll give you just a very practical, common-sense example. You know, uh, if we have to do an environmental review at the Department of Energy, for instance, uh, uh, as part of the permitting process for an LNG export facility, Uh, We take a very common-sense step and we say, well, has anyone else already done an environmental review? And if the answer to that question is yes, then we rely upon the work that's already been done rather than initiating a complete new process uh, to do what other agencies have already completed. Reliance upon their work is a very appropriate step for us to take, and that eliminates millions of dollars in permitting fees, legal fees. Other types of costs to these important projects.
1: And final question for you on uh, earlier this week, Denmark uh, gave the Nord Stream 2 permission to use pipeline vessels uh, in order to complete the final stretch of, of the pipeline. And this, you know, they're saying is, is only going to enhance their ability to get Russian natu- natural gas to Europe. This is becoming more controversial, as you know, Mr. Secretary, by the day, and it really could alter the political dynamics for Europe and Russia, increasing Europe's reliance on Russian energy and therefore have U.S. implications. I just want to ask you where the administration is on this standpoint uh, in terms of Europe and Russia and their energy reliance on each other.
3: I think we're in the same place that we've always been. The president nailed it two years ago when he attended the NATO conference and said he asked a very basic question, a very direct question. He said, you know, wait a minute. I'm protecting you from the very people that you're buying your energy from. Explain that to me. And he was speaking very specifically to German and and Europeans generally. So, you know, this was in the context of their contributions to NATO, which I understand to be still somewhat deficient. So we're going to continue our opposition to the pipeline. Uh, We appreciate what the Danes are doing. We think it's very important that they apply the European regulatory construct to this particular pipeline, and we're going to continue our pressure on them to insist that they do exactly that.
1: All right, Secretary Dan Department of Energy uh, Secretary, I appreciate your time and, and for speaking with me, sir. Thank you. We're joined by Congressman Brad Wenstrup. He is a Republican uh, serving Ohio. And 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 Congressman, I want to ask you about the next round of economic stimulus. You know, Leader McConnell the other day was saying that August, he wants to get something done before the August recess. What would be in the next round of economic stimulus?
4: Well, in, in general, I would say what we're focusing on is is a reopening package. In other words, instead of phase four or five, whatever, that we were talking about reopening phase one. And, and it still addresses the effects of, of, of COVID and its, its effects on our economy. And I think that that's going to be the big push. And we're going to continue to look for any of the glitches in the things that we've already done uh, so that we can maintain a, a, and get back to a healthy economy. Well, whether it's our hospitals, our businesses, our individuals, our small businesses, we have to take a look at all that. We painted things with a pretty broad brush when we first started, and we've seen we've had to make some changes. Extending programs like PPP, I think, is is a great deal for what's going on in America today and the needs that people have. And we have to continue to look at things going in a positive direction and uh, doing and doing it safely. And that's the that's the conundrum.
1: So you know from an economic perspective especially as economists congressmen are talking about there being a stepped up recovery with the with the you know positive economic indicators end of Q3 beginning Q4 you know you've just passed significant other significant uh, economic deals including USMCA which recently went into effect from an economic standpoint it's not just the virus but what else needs to be done in order to get a faster recovery
4: well, I think that uh, you, you'll see the administration uh, working with us uh, to, to do pro-growth things. Um, you know, I, I think that um, well, there's so many things to look at. And I know I, that I'm, I'm being kind of vague because there, there, there are a lot of opportunities out there. Um, and to allow people to uh, continue with the tax breaks to maintain more of their income, um, but we also have to get kids back in school. These, yeah. these are some of the things that we have to do for allow, to allow our economy to take place. And, of course, we have to do it, do it safely. So it's a combination of returning to normal in a, in a safe place in a way that people aren't anxious. And, and so it really comes down so much of this is involved with health, right? And so as, as you look, we have got to look at the virus itself and continue to go in positive directions medically, which we have done uh, with treatments. Uh, you're seeing far fewer people uh, uh, dying. You're seeing people that have recovered and they have convalescent plasma that can help the next person. Those are things that we need to do to build confidence in, in our society in general. Um, and we And when we do that, we can eliminate some of the other things that have been happening uh, because people aren't at work or they are shut down. we see an increase in suicides, domestic violence, all these things that are negatives for us. So we have to take a look at, at those and make sure that we can reinstitute normal life for a lot of people so that people can go to work because their kids are taken care of at school and afterwards. And all of these things come into play. We have a shortage of, of, of daycare providers. That's a problem for our economy because you can't return to work and just leave your kids at home. All of these things have to be addressed, and I'm going to look for incentives for those types of programs and to encourage more people to go into those fields because there's a definite need there. And if we don't don't address every component of this, People just can't all return back to work. But I am encouraged by the numbers that we have seen in the last couple of months.
1: And, Congressman, I want to pick up on that point because from an economic standpoint, here we are staring down the next round of economic stimulus negotiations ahead of the August recess. And and you you mentioned about the psychology of the American worker in terms of going back to work. Part of that includes sending your kids back to school and having faith that the school – not even, but being reassured that sending your your kids back to school, back to daycare, back to you know elementary school, high school, that they're going to be safe, and so you, you talked about providing incentives for these schools to be able to get access to to clean facilities and whatnot. How important is that to to, to reopening the economy?
4: It's really important, and you talk to anybody that has employees, especially in small businesses, and that is one of their major concerns, and it's going to be a limiting factor. So we've seen good numbers. We want to see the numbers going up, but those are the things that come into play. And so I represent both urban and rural areas, and it's a very different environment in, in each. I have some counties where their hospital maybe has had zero admissions for COVID, or one, and, and w- only one death, and that was with comorbidities. And so they're not understanding the same way a, an urban setting is, where you have higher numbers than you have deaths. Cincinnati is not the same as New York, and my rural areas aren't the same as Cincinnati. So how we go about doing that really is going to involve good medical decisions at the local level to build the confidence of, of parents and of kids going to school, the desire is there. I have seen that tremendously. The desire is there to return to that normal, and we just have to do all that we can to allow, especially at a local level, people to provide the safety that's necessary and the competence of that safety if they're going to go back to, to work and and be able to send their kids to school but at the same time what's really important on people's minds is they don't want their kids missing out on their education yeah and so it's a combination there so it's a very holistic approach that we need to take because it's not just about the virus are we going to have a generation of kids that were uneducated because we're not letting them go to school that's a problem and i can tell you is you know i'm lucky my my son in kindergarten uh we we get his his teachers online every day and we have his classwork online every day and we can print the programs and do the work with him not everyone has that capability across america and it, we have to recognize that and that's why the importance of continuing to educate our children is really important especially for our workforce not only for today for parents that are working but for the future and our workforce
1: yeah. congressman brad wenstrup's on the line He's Republican and he serves uh, for Ohio's second congressional district. He's also an Iraq war veteran and serves as a member of the House uh, Select Intelligence Committee. Uh, and uh, it, that's really where I want to go uh, next in terms of uh, more geopolitical, if, if I could, for a minute. How has, how has the United States collectively been Protecting itself against some of what's what's coming out of China, or how has this been changing the dynamic from Beijing uh, with their lack of transparency, Congressman, in terms of resetting uh, some of the some of the the geopolitical relationship there?
4: Uh, we have a lot of restructuring to do, and I think that this president was on his way and doing that, and I think we're going to continue to do it, and I think it, it's going to happen with the support of Congress because it needs to. I'm a, I'm a military guy. I did yep. I spent a year in Iraq. Also a physician. Very concerned about the World Health Organization. If you're not getting honest data and honest answers out of the the membership, then it's not worth having it at all. And we should just try to gather our own data as best that we can. And, and so that's a recognized problem. And I, and I think the president was right to respond to that in some ways and let it be known that we're not going to tolerate this, this type of bad behavior when it comes to the health of humankind. This has affected the entire world. That's one thing. We've also learned a valuable, valuable lesson that I think has really been brought to the forefront and maybe been ignored for, for decades now. And that's our supply chain. And so we are going to have to change our economy in a way that manufacturing comes back to the United States, which this president has been doing since the day he took office. And that is key. I got asked early on when it was recognized we had a supply chain problem. So what do you do? I said, what this president has been doing, bringing manufacturing back to the United States of America. We're going to have to find ways of doing that. As a military person, if you had told me that my protective equipment and my pharmaceuticals that we got in China, that we got in Iraq, were coming from China, I would have said there is no way. And uh, but that's the situation we're in. And I can tell you right now, we're working diligently to identify where our vulnerabilities are and working to correct that and uh, working hand in hand with the administration on that.
1: Congressman Brad Wenstrup, I want to be respectful of your time, so I'm going to leave it there. But I very much appreciate uh, you taking these questions and for talking about this with us. That's Congressman Brad Wenstrup. He is a Republican from Ohio's 2nd Congressional District. Thank you, sir. We're joined by Javita Carranza of the Small Business Administration. And she, of course, has been one of the driving forces behind making sure that businesses get access to loans, especially small businesses get access to loans. Now, We've just received some of the data about who has gotten access to the PPP loans that have been out there. Now, there have been some criticism, as you know, that it was the politically uh, well-connected that were able to get access to this. What is the administration doing to make sure that any small business that needs and qualifies for those loans is able to get it?
5: Well, Kevin, I'd like to start out by saying that the PPP has proven to be very successful. It has actually achieved its two objectives, which was uh, job retention, wage growth, all in one, and then also sustaining of small businesses. And the PPP has saved nearly 5 million small business enterprises. So those are the data, you know, the data points that I always look at, the fact that we processed about $520 billion and, and saved, and this is the other data point I always uh, stay focused on, we we estimate, based on the entry on all of the loan applications, that we've saved an estimated 51 million jobs. And I also looked at the fact that of the funding, if you look at the data very closely, you notice that most of the loans were made, um, about $150,000 and less. Actually, I look at loans that are $5,000 to $20,000. And we have provided funding for, I would say, 45% of the loan volume and value of the loans really went to low-income counties. And that's why, as I traveled throughout the United States, I visited those particular communities and, and the businesses that have been... Hit the hardest, Kevin, like the restaurants yeah. or the manufacturing.
1: And and Javida, I, I want to ask you uh, specifically about some of the criticism about the data that has been made public. Democrats have raised concerns that uh, that the, the smaller size loans have not yet been disclosed. Loans that are that are fewer than one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for those approved lo- loans. Why it, why is that? information considered proprietary or confidential?
5: You, Kevin, that's an excellent question because as an administrator of a small business administration, I take um, my fiduciary responsibility very seriously about protecting proprietary and confidence and uh, competitive information. And the smallest of small smallest businesses like the sole proprietors or for that matter, the independent contractors. I always use this as an example, Kevin. Here you have a woman, single parent, uh, single parent who's an Uber or Lyft driver, and her home address is her business address, and she's applying for something like less than five thousand dollars. That is very confidential information, and that's the information that we were trying to protect when we were very specific about what we would release and what we wouldn't release. Um, You know, the GAO office and the congressional oversight members, they've received information um, that's unique to their particular um, requirements, but as it relates to the public information, that's why we protected certain, certain alone values.
1: And and beyond that, just on Saturday, the president extending uh, the deadline for PPP loans, I believe, until August eighth. And there, I think it's a hundred and thirty plus billion dollars worth of remaining funds for for small businesses loans. Do you think if if that money isn't isn't uh, used up by August eighth, where do you think that will go, and what is the best way to appropriate the leftover? funds specifically to target to really micro target some of these small businesses micro businesses even around the country that are the backbone of of, of America's economy. Well
5: Kevin let me answer the, your question twofold. The president took historic action and very focused on small business small businesses and their employees. And he made available hundreds of billions of dollars We've already processed a half a trillion dollars worth of funds for small businesses. You have the data. And so that represents again, I can't emphasize more, fifty-one million jobs. And if the one hundred and twenty-five over one hundred and twenty five billion dollars that remains and that's available through August eighth, we're really focused on continuing to provide funds for sole proprietors and independent contractors, who's Kevin, many of them were apprehensive, and some of them returned their loans. And so we are encouraging for these particular businesses to work with their local lenders, and we have over 5,500 uh, lending partners. And, Kevin, you'd be pleased to know that there are more CDFIs and credit unions applying to be uh, authorized so that they can provide PPP. Loans because it's a forgivable loan. As long as a small business can demonstrate that they've used the funds to retain their employees as well as their operating costs, that, that's like a win win proposition. Yeah. The yeah. loan will be forgiven. So I really expect maybe a slow intake, but um, definitely more businesses, unique businesses, will be applying for these loans. Again, <laughs> over $125 billion in the PPP. Loan portfolio, but also we have the disaster loan portfolio, which is called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Portfolio, the COVID. That has, I'm going to say about another eighty to ninety billion dollars available for small businesses.
1: I just have a so couple more questions. We're busy. Yeah, yeah, I know you are, and that's why I want to be very respectful of your time. And I've just <laughs> no, got no, a couple more fine. questions because as as Congress gets rolls up their sleeve and tries to to get to some type of of another round of economic stimulus, and the president has come out and said he wants this, Mc- Leader McConnell has said by before August recess. But what do you think are some creative ways to target micro businesses, to target these mom and pop shops? And I don't like using that cliche, but these small town uh, businesses, what are some new ways that we can we can help those businesses um, in the next stimulus that you'd like to see?
5: Yes, Kevin, there's a lot of discussion uh, in the negotiations currently. We've submitted some of our recommendations to them concerning our uh, what we call the flagship um, loan portfolio, which is the 7A, the 504, which yep. really focuses on manufacturing and it focuses, focuses really in the underserved communities where 60% of their employees have to come from that community. So we're really interested in the 7A, 504 portfolio in the community advantage. Uh, we've also looked at our uh, federal procurement, our government contracting office, and then they, they're also there's also other um, considerations on the table. We're, we definitely are listening to all our small businesses and the chambers and the trade associations on what they believe would be necessary to, to, to again, assist these small businesses to weather this particular storm. This pandemic was only supposed to last two or three weeks, uh, Kevin. That was the first lifeline. And then it was expanded to the second tranche of funds, which we now still have $125,000, I'm sorry, $150 billion uh, available, all in SBA. So, Kevin, we want to make sure that the small business community continues to thrive like they did pre-COVID pandemic, because I'll give you a couple of statistics. The Hispanic women's small businesses and the African-American small women's small businesses were the fastest growing small businesses pre-pandemic. And they were significant employers, and they definitely represent half of the GDP in the United States. That represents something like 10 to 11 trillion dollars. So I hope that brings in an appreciation why this president is so focused on small businesses and this entire administration's focus on small businesses, uh, because they are such an um, essential um, economic fuel engine into our national uh, economy.
1: And that sets up for my for my final question uh, uh, to you. Specifically, you mentioned just about how uh, disproportionately uh, certain minority groups, as well as rural communities, have been impacted from an economic standpoint, and just yes. the, the need to really make sure that that is uh, that that's revitalized, especially uh, during this recovery. And and oftentimes, those smaller businesses are more difficult to get access to, just given. For a variety of reasons, but for the government to directly access uh, those and, and penetrate those small businesses. So how crucial is it that these minority communities, that these underserved communities around the country are able to have direct access and a direct pipeline into the federal government and Congress to make sure that they're a part of this recovery and not left behind? Well, Kevin
5: as an advocate for Small Business Administration and the fact that we recognize there are 31 million small businesses and we've only, only processed about 15 million small business financial transactions, we understand we have our work cut out and so we remain laser focused on the Opportunity Zones the the USMCA, because small businesses are very significant exporters in every state. And Mexico and um, Canada are definitely markets that small businesses explore as an initial trading partner. So the president's pro-growth policies will further accelerate the recovery. And I'm ensuring that the entire SBA and our partners, which is Commerce, Department of Labor, the Chambers... We're going at, at the small business community as a whole government, not just SBA. So we're, we're totally committed in the underserved market, from the tribal nations to the veterans to the women-owned and, and minority in, gen, in general.
1: I want to thank you for your time, and I'm going to leave it there. I know you were on a tight schedule, so I want to keep you on time, uh, and I'm very appreciative. No, thank you, Kevin. Thank, thank, you, thank you very, you so very much. much
5: for the invite. Take care.
1: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We are joined by a spokesman for President Trump, Ben Williamson. Ben, I want to get your reaction to something that I've been hearing a lot from administration sources, and that is to not to, to look at the number of cases that are being reported, but to also pay attention to the case fatality rate of COVID-19. Explain to me why that's important and what the difference is.
6: Well, Kevin, first of all, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. And that's exactly right. I think those are, uh, those are a couple additional metrics that we need to be looking at in addition to cases. It's true that we're seeing you know, cases rise in some areas across the country. We have different hot zones uh, that are popping up, and we're, we're working with states and localities to deal with that. But a lot of that is because we're increasing testing. You know, we've hit over 40 million tests, I believe the number is now. Um, And as a result of that increased number of testing, you're going to be catching a lot more asymptomatic cases, uh, cases that maybe aren't quite as serious uh, as hospitalization rates may indicate. Uh, And so that's a couple of things that we have to look at is, is number one, uh, what are the hospitalization numbers? And then number two, uh, what are the fatality rates that we're experiencing? And the data does look good on those two fronts. We have one of the lowest fatality rates in the world. I think we're a little bit below Uh, or around 4%, which is significantly lower than some of our competitors across the globe. And so when we look at that, uh, when we consider... Uh, the numbers that we're dealing with, those are certainly uh, two of the indicators that we want to look at to see exactly how, situa- how serious the situation is.
1: And meanwhile, we're staring down the prospects of another economic stimulus. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said he wants to see another round of stimulus ahead of the August recess. Uh, administration officials have also suggested as much. What does the White House want to see included in the next round of economic stimulus, especially as talks for phase four continue to intensify?
6: Well, I think we're where Secretary Mnuchin mentioned the other day in his press conference, you know, protect jobs, protect kids, and protect liabilities. Uh, we want any stimulus coming out of Congress to make sure that, number one, we make it easier for people to get back to work, for businesses to, to rehire their employees, to, to jumpstart the economy, and make sure that our economy can get back to normal. Uh, and then, number two, we also want to make sure that it's easier for kids to go back to school. The economy can't really open and get back to normal unless schools are open. And we want to work hand-in-hand hand with states and localities to make sure that schools can open safely, uh, that children can be safe in school, and the teachers can be safe in school. So that's something that we want to address. And then number three, we want to look at liabilities. We want to make sure that businesses uh, can open uh, without fear of uh, liability that will damage their business or, uh, uh, or or cost them enough where it's not worth reopening in the age of COVID. So Secretary Mnuchin is leading those negotiations. He'll be working hand-in-hand with uh, Leader McConnell and our, our Democratic uh, counterparts in the Senate as well, and we look forward to seeing where those negotiations go.
1: You know, Ben Williamson's on the line. He is a spokesman for President Trump, working at the White House. He previously worked for uh, the, the chief... Uh, the now Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, but previously for then Congressman Mark Meadows. So he knows a thing or two about the dynamics of Congress, the Republican Party, and its relationship, (laughs) obviously, with 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But I want to bring it back, Ben, to something you mentioned about schools. Because I personally, I don't think economists are talking enough about this and the impact that it has on the psychology of the American worker, especially if they don't feel safe sending their kids back to schools. I mean, how are they expected to go back to work? But then you throw in, to the mix of of kids playing with each other going to schools uh, you know and 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 all of these hosts of different questions and so you mentioned this and I and I want to follow up on it what does congress need to do in the next round of economic stimulus to help ease some of the concerns that parents have for sending their children back to the classroom
6: you you hit the nail on the this is one of the more uh, under discussed topics uh, in all of Washington, D.C., as far as the impacts that, that reopening schools uh, has not only on the economy, but but on, on mental health, on the, on the uh, fabric of communities, on psychology of both kids and parents. It's not just parents having the freedom to get back to work and, and provide for their families, but it's, it's kids. It's kids being out in the community. It's kids playing with each other, learning. Uh, uh, schools are such a huge driver of, uh, of our success economically. As a country, you're exactly right about that. And so what Congress wants to do, I think Kevin McCarthy had an op-ed on this, kind of explaining a little bit about what what uh, what we want to do. But we want to work hand-in-hand with states and localities to make sure uh, that they have both the funds and the resources uh, to open up safely. And what that looks like, uh, we won't get out ahead of of the negotiations. It could look like any number of, of safety measures. But but we want to make sure that, that from, from Pennsylvania Avenue that we're there for states – uh, and local governments to make sure they have uh, measures to protect kids, and then also work with Congress. Uh, if funds are necessary to do that, we're, we're willing to be right there with them to make sure that kids can get back to school, so that uh, life can get back to as normal as possible while we deal with uh, ultimately therapeutics and a vaccine for COVID.
1: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and we're joined by CMS Administrator Verma. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. I want to ask you, uh, on November 1st of 2019, CMS issued a final rule which would enact payment restrictions to non-evaluation and management services in the Medicare system. After COVID and seeing the need for some of these health services, do you think that rule's got to be postponed until th- until we are through this? Or do you think we could still follow through with that?
7: Well, it's a couple of things to know about this rule. First of all, this rule was trying to reduce the burden that physicians face every day with the Medicare program. We know that there's just a lot of challenges in billing, and they, they spend, you know, unfortunately more time away from their patients, and this rule is designed to give them more time, face-to-face time with their patients. Um, the other thing that it does is it, it really reimburses, physicians for the time that they're spending with their patients. A lot of times the way the system has worked in the past is that it doesn't really advantage those providers, our primary care doctors that are on the front lines dealing with our patients that have multiple comorbidities. You know, a lot of our patients now have diabetes, hypertension, and a lot of different disease issues all going on at once. And they need more time with their doctors. And so the changes that we made Reimbursed providers for spending time with their patients and reducing their burden.
1: So, and and even during this, and you know this, Administrator Verma, during This crisis, the elderly have been incredibly, incredibly impacted, both from a psychological perspective in terms of not being able to be with loved ones for their own safety uh, and 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 economically as well. Uh, And I'm, I'm curious about Medicare and whether or not you think as we stare down the potential for another economic stimulus, whether or not Medicare payment increases might be something on the table for right now. You know, one
7: of the things that we've done in the Medicare program is provide accelerated uh, payments for our providers. So if they've had trouble, our health care providers have had trouble with finances, they've been able to seek loans from the Medicare program. The other thing that we've done is so that the president's been focused on and and uh, he is, is signing the CARES Act, and that actually provided $175 billion to providers across the country. We know that providers have been hit hard. They have increased costs for personal protective equipment. Many of them haven't been able to uh, perform elective surgeries, and many of them have closed down their practices. So those funds um, are there to help the healthcare system deal with the impact of the coronavirus that being said i can tell you and from the medicare program is we're starting to see services come back up we're seeing a lot of our patients accessing telehealth services which is one of the things that the president did from the very beginning uh, to make sure that our medicare beneficiaries could communicate with their providers while they were sheltering in place
1: do you think we have enough doctors in the (laughs) medicare system because so with so many people getting sick or is that is that something people should be concerned about or no
7: you know, I think generally we're we're adding uh, 10,000 new beneficiaries wow. to the Medicare program every single day. So the needs uh, on the healthcare system and the impact are significant. But that's why the president has been focused on workforce challenges. That's why we've been providing more flexibility to the healthcare system, especially during COVID, so that we can augment the workforce. We're allowing providers to operate at the top of their license, whether it be our nurse anesthetists, also, providing more flexibility for nurse practitioners so that we can make sure that, um, especially those uh, hot spots and areas, are able to address the surges and that they have the capacity to address the healthcare needs of their communities.
1: CMS Administrator Seema Verma is on the line, and, and you know, I'm struck by this because we hear of all of the heroic. incredible frontline workers who are just really, you know, they're risking their lives. They're working these incredibly long shifts. And then I get angry because I hear about the fraudsters and I hear about people Mm -hmm. taking advantage of, of whether it's the elderly, whether it's, it's uh, folks, you know, anyone really, you know, and they're being fraudulent and they're tricking people into making some telehealth payments. And, you know, I know that this has been something that you've really you know, pushed back against and, and been trying to stop. So what are what are policymakers, what are you doing in order to make sure that people aren't being it's it's crazy to me, but that people aren't falling for these fraudsters.
7: Yeah, well, it was disappointing that those fraudsters would try to take advantage it's of awful. the American taxpayer during this very difficult time. You know, we have waived um, hundreds of regulations so that the healthcare system could work better, more efficiently, especially during this time of crisis. And unfortunately, people are taking advantage of it. I can tell you at the agency that we have focused on a very strong plan that for every waiver, for every flexibility, we have a plan to track potential fraudsters. So in telehealth, we've already found some people that were billing for more services that were humanly possible in a 24-hour period. So, you know, rest assured taxpayers should know that behind the scenes we're looking for those individuals and we'll do everything we can to, to bring them to justice.
1: And just a final question for you on the issue of telehealth. I mean, it really is the future of medicine. What? what uh, I, I would argue it might be one of the legacies of, the, of this p- horrible pandemic is that it's, telehealth has really surged to, to reprogram really how we view getting access to, to our uh, health care. But what, what advances have been made in the telehealth field during the last couple of months?
7: Well, you know, the president's been focused on making sure that we're bringing innovation, technology, and really modernizing the Medicare program. So uh, what we've done from the very beginning, what he's done, and I think this speaks to his leadership around uh, bringing every tool possible to address the coronavirus. And so we made telehealth available not only in the Medicare program, but also in Medicaid. And it's been really important for people because it's allowed them to receive healthcare in the safety of their home. And it's also helped keep our healthcare workers safe and reduce use of protective equipment. Um, you know, it's been amazing to see the rapid adoption across the healthcare system. Our patients seem to like it. Doctors were reluctant at first, but I think they're recognizing that telehealth can be a tool to increase accessibility of healthcare services. So I've said that this is uh, the, the genie's been let out of the bottle and I don't think there's any going back when it comes to telehealth. I think the American public have clearly seen that there are uh, that there is a place for telehealth in our healthcare system.
1: All right. CMS Administrator Seema Verma, I will let you out of here because I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much uh, for for joining us. Thank you. All right. So here we are, Mark. We're we're dealing with an uptick in cases and there's a lot of questions about how to best control this. Top economic officials have said uh, as part of the administration that closing down the economy again is just not on the table. So how do we get this virus under control?
8: Well, closing down the economy is certainly not uh, an option that's on the table. When the United States asked Americans to uh, sacrifice for 45 days to slow the spread, uh, people made enormous sacrifices. It gave us the time and preparation to build supplies from across the globe to make sure that our hospitals were better prepared and to develop better therapeutics. And today at this point, um, doctors know far better how to treat patients. And what we're seeing in many cases is an ability to – to better protect those that are most vulnerable, whether it's those who have comorbidities or, or those that are elderly in age. And so what we're seeing now is a, is, a, is a rise in cases among younger populations, 25 to 44 years old. In some cases, um, as our health experts will tell you from decisions that they've made that are unwise about not taking the virus seriously. But in other cases, it's, it's basically people getting back to work and in some cases employers mandating that all employees get tested and you're finding people People who are asymptomatic, which is good to find so you can isolate them. But uh, but we are better able to treat patients. There's better uh, capacity within our hospitals in these areas now. And uh, and going back to uh, to shutdown is not an option. We can do both. We can make sure that America stays open and stays healthy. And I think that one of the things we've learned through this, Kevin, is there's also an the enormous health consequence to shutting down the economy, whether or not that's a financial pain or whether or not that's a psychological pain for many right. people.
1: Mark, you know, we're heading into phase four talks later this month. What are some of the priorities for phase four?
8: Well, I think what you're seeing Kevin is that uh, over the last uh, couple of months uh, seven and a half million jobs that have returned uh, at the at the nadir of this uh, epidemic we've lost a little over twenty million jobs so a third of the way back, and that means we have a, we still have a significant way to go but we're but the the strength of the last two months certainly surpassed expectations, and we believe that you can continue to see that momentum in the next month as well. I think we want to make sure that um, that people that are that are still uh, unemployed and hurting are protected, but at the same time, um, we want to we want to take into consideration the fact the economy is bouncing back. And once you try to contain the amount of spending, I think that you've seen a price tag of about a trillion dollars or less. There's obviously been a, a lot of stimulus put into the system over the last couple of bills, and so the price tag for us uh, would be that. And I think one of the priorities for us is liability protection. Yeah. Uh, we think that's essential for employers to bring people back to.
1: And just quickly, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says another round of stimulus ahead of August. Is that the timetable that the White House is working on?
8: It is the timetable. The August recess for Congress should be the first week in August. And so by that timetable is when we want to have a bill on the president's desk.
1: You know, something that is just as important to the economy and, and for folks getting back to work is if their kids can go to school. And this is something that I don't think economists have talked a lot about publicly, but increasingly they are doing so. Where does school and getting kids back to school in the fall, based upon the the data of the virus all over the country, Mark, how does that factor in? And what is the administration doing in order to work with schools across the country?
8: Kevin, it's a great question. You're exactly right. I think there's not been enough attention paid to that to this point. Today, the White House is devoting almost an entire day to exactly that question. The vice president will be leading a call with all the nation's governors this morning to talk about the importance of making sure schools are reopened in the fall. Additionally, there will be a summit here at the White House uh, throughout the afternoon that will culminate with the president and vice president giving remarks. But recently, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a study that said it's essential that children need to get back in the classroom, because developmentally, they'll fall behind. But as you mentioned, it's also critically important that if parents, if kids are not able to go to school and parents are home with their kids, they're not able to get back to work. And that's, that's a big uh, challenge for our economy, too. And so what we found is all the evidence says that, that actually the coronavirus is less of a health risk to people under 25 years old than the average flu is. Conversely, it is a greater risk to people at older populations, but for children, it is a very, very low risk and it's something that we should be making sure that our children are back in school across the country this fall.
1: All right. Final question for you, because you mentioned therapeutics and I I, want to ask you about hydroxychloroquine, because there seems to be this this new uh, interest from from President Trump about hydroxychloroquine uh, and and FDA. Talk to me about how the FDA is streamlining regulations or really cutting through regulations in order to get some of these therapeutics uh, more quickly uh, and and what the administration is doing on the therapeutic front.
8: Well, uh, Dr. Hahn has done a phenomenal job as head of the FDA in helping to streamline and cut through some of the red tape. And there are right now um, more than 140 products in the pipeline uh, that we should anticipate many of them getting approved before the end of this year. And you've seen many already actually come online. I think the most promising, candidly, in trials that we've seen is blood plasma. And it's one of the reasons that those who have been infected and recovered from the coronavirus, we really ask them to go donate blood because having that that, that in the in the supply is really one of the best treatments for, for patients that are currently suffering from the pandemic.
1: All right, Mark Short, I got you out of here with less than a minute to go. Thank you for your time. Appreciate
8: it. Kevin, <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much for having
1: me. We're joined by Tyler Goodspeed. Uh, and Tyler, thank you so much for, um, for joining us. I, I want to ask you about the next rounds of economic stimulus. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says by the end of August, is that what the White House wants? And what does the White House want to see in the next round of economic stimulus?
6: Yeah. So the,
9: the the White House, we've had some internal discussions, and and definitely we do want to see uh, further action to, to facilitate continued recovery, particularly in the labor market. I know that some priorities over here uh, include a, a payroll tax cut, uh, and also possibly some, some some deductions to help businesses uh, tackle the the, the, the new COVID nineteen environment, um, and and also some potential liability reform to ensure that businesses are protected against excessive uh, non-economic damages for COVID-related liability. And then also, we do want to make sure, uh, especially uh, as the labor market continues to recover, that we're striking the right balance between income replacement on the one hand and ensuring that we don't have excessively high implicit tax rates on the return to work, uh, on the other hand.
1: You know, I think that's really, that's the point I want to pick up on, is that is that increased taxes, especially for individuals when they return to work. You know, the unemployment benefits are, are set to end, the extra unemployment benefits are set to end at the end of the month, July 31st. What do you think is going to be done with stimulus and unemployment benefits?
9: Right. So I think during the, the, the depths of the, the crisis, so when we think back to, to April, um, you know, this was the worst economic shock to the U.S. economy since, since at least the 1930s. And when we look at all the economic indicators, I mean, it was on track to be a, a really devastating economic contraction. And so with a view to the fact that Household spending is 70 percent of the U.S. economy. I think at the time it was very important that we made sure to really buffer household incomes um, and, and make sure that we didn't see a collapse in consumer spending. And so one of the things about the, the, the expanded unemployment insurance benefits and the rebate checks is that they were very tar- much targeted toward the lower end of the income distribution. So when you look at the the months of household income replaced by the CARES Act provisions, they were very much uh, geared toward uh, the lower end of the income distribution. So I think in any any future rounds of of discussions with with Congress, we want to, as I said, make sure that we're we're not allowing a big blow to household income and consequently to consumer spending while also making sure that we don't have really high implicit tax rates on on that return to work
1: so i I think what's what's interesting and and you know this tyler goodspeak who's on the line with us you know in terms of some republicans that i talked to they're a bit nervous tyler they're a bit nervous that you know you you increase the unemployment benefits and folks will, will be less incentivized to go back to work. Is that a concern that the White House has? And how do you work with policymakers on the Hill to prevent that, if that's the case?
9: Right. So, as I said, yeah, we, we definitely don't want to see uh, implicit tax rates exceeding 100%, meaning, you know, the, the, the folks are financially better off uh, on unemployment insurance than, than in employment. Um, and so, you know, we, just, we, we definitely want to make sure that we strike that right balance Um, And so one of the things about some of the the extraordinary provisions of the CARES Act is that they were set to expire, Um, because I think one of the lessons we learned in the aftermath of 2008, 2009, is that when you have a lot of uh, high implicit tax rates on work, it can really hinder the recovery of the labor market. And, you know, until the labor market recovers, you don't really observe a, a strong recovery in the overall economy.
1: And just a final question for you, Tyler Goodspeed, and this is about small businesses. How do we make sure that in the recovery that Main Street is not going to be left behind? Because when you look at, you know, sort of how this has gone, it's been minority groups who economically have really felt the brunt of this as well as some small businesses. So what can policymakers do to prevent that?
9: Great question. So certainly, you know, we've already seen in the CARES Act a lot of the aid in fact most of the aid to to businesses were to small businesses so the paycheck protection program that was very much geared towards small businesses uh the average loan size was just over hundred thousand dollars and almost 90 percent of the loans approved were for 150000 or less um i think moving forward you know we want to make sure that any any continuing support for for businesses are are likewise targeted towards smaller firms that you know are, are have a more difficult time weathering some of these adverse shocks. Um, and then on the, on the labor market front, you know, the, the faster we can get folks back to work in a, in a safe environment, um, the, the faster we can help those at the lower end of the income distribution. Because remember, if we cast our minds back to February 2020, before the pandemic really got, got underway, uh, it was the lower end of the income distribution that was enjoying the fastest wage growth. African-Americans were, for the first time during the preceding expansion, experiencing faster wage growth than white Americans. Those without a college degree were experiencing, for the first time in the expansion, faster wage growth than those with a college degree. Right.
6: Um,
9: you know, the, fa- the, the faster we can return to that sort of tight labor market... I think you know the, the quicker we can return to a state of affairs in which those who were previously left behind during the preceding expansion can finally enjoy the, the fruits of, of a continuing expansion. So All I right. think we're definitely going to keep keep focused on facilitating uh, labor market recovery because, as I said, until the labor market recovers, we don't see a, we won't see a, a broader economic recovery. And, and then, right. just one final note, you know, we saw already in the June jobs report uh, job gains for African Americans was the second highest uh, on, on record. Uh, the, the, the record was actually in, in February 2018 uh, following the, the 2017 tax uh, tax law. Um, so as I said, you know, it, it, the faster we can get back to a, a tight, growing labor market, uh, the faster we can observe uh, a, a, an overall recovery.
1: All right. Tyler Goodspeed of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous with your time, and I want to make sure I get you out of here on time. So thank you, Tyler.